Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you both. Looking forward to our time together today. Glad to be here, Brian. Well, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We've used Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. On our last episode, we answered the question, if God exists, why is there evil? If you missed the episode, I encourage you to check it out. But because this is such a big question, we're answering it in two parts. Last broadcast, we defined evil and looked at its origin, investigating who is ultimately responsible for evil. On this episode, we'll look at why God doesn't stop evil, could God have avoided evil, and is there a purpose to evil? But before we jump into today's questions, we're going to refresh our listeners because this, these are some essential components that you understand. So, Joe, as a, as a, as a means of refreshing our listeners, or maybe those who didn't catch last broadcast. Who is responsible for evil? Well, on our last broadcast, we came to the conclusion that it was the actor, the individual, the person who chose the evil bears the responsibility. And as we know, God created man with freedom, and the misuse of that freedom uh, brought about evil into this world. And Therefore, mankind bears the responsibility. And remember, that word responsibility literally means the ability to respond. And if man has the ability to respond and yet misused his freedom, then the culpability would lie at his feet. And remember, God is the indirect cause of evil because he gave man the possibility to sin by giving him the perfection of free choice. So that makes God distant from the actual culpability. He just made evil possible, whereas man misused his freedom and made evil actual. Um, To blame God for evil is equivalent to blaming Henry Ford for all the deaths that occur in auto accidents or DUIs or hit and runs. Um, Remember, Henry only made the automobile evils possible, um, but man, the driver, makes them actual. It's the same way with um, evil today. Man is the one who bears the responsibility. And that's a very important facet for our listeners to understand. And again, why we're refreshing and just touching on it once again. Luke, any further thoughts on that question before we jump into the new questions? Yes, Brian, just a brief review of Romans 5.12. As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so then death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And just to confirm exactly what Dr. Holden has stated, is if God is not directly responsible, then that begs the question of who is, and then how they are responsible, and it is that they have a will. And if the will constitutes what we understand a will to be, then if it is to be a free will, then it can actualize. 
And if it actualizes things that are not those things that God desires to happen, then that constitutes evil simply by someone doing something that they wanted to do that God did not want them to do. And it's it's really that simple uh, as exactly as he stated that their will was used for a purpose where they could have continued to choose what was good and they chose what was not. So good. Thanks for that. Well, now we're jumping into some really tough questions. And I know you both are going to have great answers um, in helping people work through these. But if, if God is, you know, gave the potential for sin, why doesn't God stop evil? I mean, if there's the potentiality for it to be out there, why doesn't God just interject and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm done with this. And, and let's just start with you, Joe. Why doesn't God stop evil? Well, that's a good question because God is all powerful and he certainly could stop evil and he's all loving and all good. So therefore he would want to stop evil. But the rub lies is why doesn't he stop evil now? But when we look to the scriptures, Jesus did defeat evil on the cross positionally during his first coming. In fact, in Colossians 2, it says that Jesus nailed it to the cross. And in 1 John chapter 3, it says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And in the future, the defeat of evil will be done in a practical sense at the second coming. So to boil all this down is in his first coming, he defeated evil positionally on the cross. In his second coming, he'll defeat evil practically with the crown, meaning that Christ made the defeat and final victory over evil possible by going to the cross. And he will one day, yet in the future, defeat evil. And just because evil is not yet actually defeated now, doesn't mean it won't be defeated in the future. Even evil hasn't been totally eliminated yet. And that's the key word, yet. We have to remind ourselves that yet is the operative word because nobody knows the future. To object to God's existence because of the continuation of evil now assumes that the objector knows the future, that evil will never be defeated. But that's not true and assumes to know more about the future than God who made the future and the present <laughs> in all of its mm -hmm. fullness. So what the bottom line is here is that Evil does not stop now because he would have to eliminate the source of evil, and that would be the misuse of freedom. He would have to abolish free choice, and if he abolishes free choice, certainly that would get rid of evil now and stop it, but it would also stop salvation as well, and that's not something he's willing to do. So, so Joe, if, if someone came and said, well, I, I just don't believe in God because— he doesn't stop evil. Um, why Why isn't that necessarily a good argument? And again, I'm, I'm drawing our listeners back to the first broadcast where I gave the example of Bart Ehrman, who started off in the evangelical church, was a star student of the Bible, and then, of course, started to question the biblical narrative. But really, his biggest problem was, you know, the problem of evil. Well, why 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 doesn't God just stop it? So, you know, to believe that God doesn't exist because evil is, is this a reasonable argument? 
Uh, no, because for the reasons I just stated, he would have to eliminate freedom. And if he eliminates freedom, he'd also have to eliminate salvation, the possibility of salvation, since salvation comes through exercising your free will to receive freely the gift of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So, and the objector, like I mentioned, does not know the future. It doesn't, it presumes to know the end of the story before the end of the story occurred. I mean, you apply that same logic scientifically, and nobody would have known how bumblebees flew or or earthquakes, how they worked and so forth. They gained more knowledge the more time they spent with the subject. The same is true when talking about evil. We know that one day, yet in the future, God will defeat evil. He's already defeated it positionally, and he will then defeat it actually at the second coming of Christ. So good. So let's move now to you, Luke, for more insight. Why doesn't God stop evil? I I think that what Dr. Holton said really begs that question, right, is that who is to say that he doesn't stop evil in the ultimate sense? And so there's a, a little bit of a devil in the detail of the question that is often used by folks like you've mentioned with Bart Ehrman. And I, I love to question the questions on many of these very mainstream conversations because they keep pushing people into the funnel toward the trap. The way the question is asked, and many many folks will more than gladly acknowledge that people can give the wrong answer to a question, but most do not question the question as a mind that can just, that can create an incorrect answer can just as easily conceive of a bad question. And in the question, I think in the in the question itself is this buried implication of the same responsibility that we just sort of disposed of in our initial question, which who is responsible for evil? And the, the question then remains, why does man think that God is responsible to stop that which he himself is actualizing? And this, I think, gets to the root of a lot of the theodicy questions where people are trying to pass judgment upon God for why he has not taken action according to the expectations of men, when men are in the process of taking action that is directly against the commands of God, and wants to now make God the janitor to try to clean up the cosmic issue that they have, uh, that originates in their own heart. So I definitely agree, God doesn't stop it because it would then eliminate what it no, what is known to be human, which is to have freedom. Souls and Eaton says it this way, and I'm paraphrasing that he said it'd be great if we could be so keen as to determine who among us were the ones who are actually evil, gather them all together, and do away with them. So, but the problem is the line between good and evil travels right through the middle of every human heart, and who wants to dispose of a part of their own heart? And it's so easy for us as human beings and those who are typically responsible for asking these questions to try to take that mess that we've created and say, well, it's out of control now, so it must be God's responsibility to solve. When the same agency within them that allowed the evil to originate in their own life is still there as a potential mitigation to the evil that they are currently committing. Everybody, and, and 
it's an oddity. I'll say more about this later on in the cast, but there's still the question still has implications towards God as a responsible party. And then I'll just say this, and we'll jump on to the next thing, but in place of God physically stopping evil, you know, when the murderer pulls out the weapon and he goes for the victim, why doesn't God suddenly appear, wrest the weapon from the murderer's grasp, save the victim, and all is well? Because by depriving a person of the means in the moment to try to commit evil does not change the heart of the individual who's committing it. It doesn't stop the origination of the evil, nor will it ultimately stop the actualization of it, simply because a person has been thwarted from it. And what God's after, he's playing the long game that men want to say, well, because he didn't physically stop it, he's doing nothing about it. When actually, there's not a single person who murders anyone else who isn't doing something that they know is wrong. How do they know it's wrong? It is the mitigation of God's word, his revelation, and the conscience he has placed within us as the mainstay against evil. No evil is committed except that it violates that boundary where men are doing those things which they know are wrong, and therefore even further removing the plausibility of their excuse that it's God's responsibility to stop them because if they have free agency, then they can just as easily stop themselves from doing that which they know is wrong rather than telling God that in addition to telling them that it's wrong, he must now actually physically prevent them from committing it. It's just a bridge too far when it comes to people who have agency, admittedly so, to do evil, that they wish to make it something about why doesn't God stop it? Mm. It's really good. I, I, I like what you write in your book, Joe. You said, just because God is all powerful and all good doesn't mean he must destroy evil now. Rather, if God is all powerful, he can destroy evil. And if he is all good, he will destroy evil. Our finite minds simply do not know when. And those are the key words of, of you know, now when, will, and how. And so the, just just great stuff. So the great answers, both of you. But now I'm going to throw another one on you. Uh, you you're not done yet. <laughs> so, so the next big question, again, um, that many people ask, and this you, you hear this on TV, you hear this uh, on radio, you read it in books, and it's all over the place. Why not? Why doesn't God stop evil? But what is the purpose for evil? And why Why is, you know, evil's out there. We know that. We could all agree upon that. But what is the purpose of evil? So, Joe, let's start with you. Well, that is a huge question that's been asked for millennia, I think, since the dawn of man and after the fall in the garden. What is the purpose of all this, especially the evil? But we first need to remind ourselves that just because we don't know the purpose doesn't mean that God doesn't have a good purpose for it. Um, Romans chapter 11 says his mind is unsearchable, that his ways are past finding out. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Um, he has good purposes for everything because he's an all good God and all loving God, even though we don't understand it all. Uh, we do know there's some good purposes for evil, even from our limited perspective. Uh, first of all, evil 
may be used to warn us of grave, greater evils ahead. In other words, a toothache uh, warns us of a root canal, and a root canal warns us of jaw surgery and so forth. So the pain and suffering uh, in a more like a physical sense, by way of example, can lead us to preserve ourselves from some deeper calamity or a, a burn on our hand when we touch a stove. We retract our hand uh, quickly because of the pain and the suffering. It teaches us a lesson, if you will. Uh, the same is true with evils in our life, with pain and suffering. It can build our character and it can make us wiser. Also, sometimes God allows evil to defeat evil. Um, Jesus on the cross, he allowed the suffering and the pain of Christ to be killed on the cross and be condemned and and so forth. And, and this pain and suffering, this evil that was perpetrated against an innocent man brought mercy to the many. I mean, it brought the ability for everybody to be saved. And we relish in that today, especially those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank God that he allowed Jesus to suffer that evil because it brought blessings to the world. Or even Joseph in captivity. Uh, you had his brothers selling him into slavery and his brothers meant to cause him evil and pain and suffering. But in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph turns to his brothers and basically said, you meant it for, for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive today. And so he preserved the family, he preserved the region from a catastrophic famine, and he he blessed his people. So there are good reasons and purposes that God has. We may not know them all, but it doesn't mean he doesn't have them. And he can use those evils to strengthen us, to build our character, to foster more faith and trust, and to get us to continue praying that thy kingdom come and thy will be done ultimately in the end. Great answer, great answer. Well, now it's your turn, Luke. Is there a purpose for evil? I would agree with everything he said, and <clears throat> excuse me, and I would say it's a, it's an interesting question. I'm going to take a uh, sort of a bifurcated view of this. I'd say the initial purposes for evil are those that are found in accompaniment with its actualization in the heart that originates it. There's a purpose that men intend for their actions, like we see in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, the people imagine a vain, a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break his bands asunder, cast his cords off of us. So they're they're engaging in something that's going to, in their mind, while it is clearly an act of evil, it's going to defy the ability of the powers that be to hold them accountable for it. They're seeking to destroy the consequences of the deeds that they wish to commit, the power that they want to take to themselves, and the manner by which they do it. And so their purposes often are to, in some way, the purposes for evil from the human side are in some way to thwart conformity to a particular moral truth, and then to then avoid the consequences of their avoidance of the moral truth in the first place. So this is their purposes. The, the problem for human beings is that they cannot actually thwart that ultimately. And sometimes the consequences are much more 
rapid in some areas than others. But then in the midst of all that actualization, despite the motives of the human being, there is an inability of the human being, despite that motive, to thwart the ultimate plan of God at nexus points that he himself has determined, that they ultimately end up feeding into regardless of the motives that they have. And so I'd say, in some cases, the evil that men do introduce consequences that may ultimately cause them to reform without God having to intervene. And, and that's one of the interesting things. It's not doesn't take a divine act for people to experience the consequences of the evils that they commit, even though there are going to be divine consequences at some point for those things, at least an account. But in, in those instances, sometimes people learn from that. And it's like there's the way that we are now, at least after the fall, we have to learn through experience. And sometimes there's a reason why those consequences are allowed and amplify the evil of the initial deed that has now brought the consequences into that person's life. Um, finally, in, in the event that there's a greater purpose for it, that's going to be as infinite as God himself in that he can repurpose those actions to his own good, as he speaks about in Romans 8. And that's the unknowable part that Dr. Holden is, is talking about here. There's not a way for us to know what that ultimate purpose is, except for the fact that God does not neglect uh, the actions of men in bringing into fruition the plans that he has for them. Mm-hmm. That's great. And it's a really a cool uh, insight and perspective and angle on that, Luke. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Well, we're going to get to our final tough question for um, this this topic of if God, why evil? And the question is, could God have avoided evil? I mean, was there any other way? You know, when God you know, created the foundations, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, was there any other way out of this dilemma without giving the possibility of evil? And let's have you unpack it first, Joe. Could God have avoided evil? Well, that question engenders a lot of uh, response, some emotional, some some rational, but some have said God is sadistic or malevolent. Uh, he just loves to see us squirm, and that's why he created the world uh, the way it he did. But God, yes, God could have avoided evil. Um, he could have created a world where uh, man exists, but no evil would be possible to come and be introduced into the world. But to do that, he would have to remove free choice. And if you remove free choice from the man and pre-program him to automatically love God and and to do always the right thing, it renders love meaningless. It's like going to a store and buying one of those chatty Kathy dolls and pulling the string and and all of a sudden you you hear this words, I love you, I love you, I love you. Well, how meaningful is that to you? Um, it wouldn't be because they were pre-programmed and they are designed to do that. They have no feelings for you or no commitment to you. And that would destroy any type of meaningful relationship that God would have with his people that he created. Now, he did create the garden free from sin, free from evil until Adam and Eve introduced it into our world. 
Um, and so the meaningfulness of love is more important to God than the risk of evil entering into the world. And then secondly, to avoid evil, God could have created nothing. And But this is essentially saying that nothing is better than something. And to a starving person, a half a loaf of bread is better than no loaf at all, ultimately. In fact, this is why we send our kids out to the front yard to play, even though we know there's a risk of skinning their knees, of breaking a leg or getting uh, injured and so forth, because something is better than nothing. Or else we'd be keeping our kids in the bedroom all day long, lock the doors, don't let them out, they could get hurt and so forth. So God created a world in which there were free choices involved. And this may not be the best of all possible worlds now with free creatures involved, but it's the best way to get to the best of all possible worlds with free creatures involved. And God has a plan to ultimately defeat evil, and it's doing it this way, according to the way in which we're living right now. You got to get into the ring with the champ in order to win the title, and that's what God did. He gave people freedom because he knew that some people in heaven and some people in hell is better than no people in heaven and no people in hell. Mm. You know, you you bring up um, the, you know, the biblical teaching of of hell, Joe, and I know a lot of people again have have issues with that. Um, but in in your book, you you do discuss or you address hell. Um, maybe you could elaborate just a little bit on that. Um, you know, does God send people to hell, uh, or you know, you know, like you said, some people have this idea of a sadistic God up there. Oh, I can't wait to send people to hell. Why why was hell even created? Well, remember, uh, the lake of fire or Gehenna, the uh, eternal place of torment, was created originally for the devil and his angels. Lucifer sinned, a third of the angels sinned, and that would be their final abode. But also, eventually, man would sin, and they would be in this place that we typically call hell. Uh, the Bible calls it uh, either Hades or hell. Hades is a temporary place of torment, whereas Gehenna or the lake of fire is a permanent place of torment. Hades would be like a jail awaiting trial. And then once you're uh, convicted of guilt, then you're sent to prison, which would be like the lake of fire that goes on forever and ever. And this is a place that's characterized by pain, privation, and punishment, those three qualities. And we know from God's character that he wants to send nobody to hell. In 2 Peter 3, it tells us that he wishes that all should come to repentance and that nobody would be lost or perish. John 3.16 tells us that he sent his son. He loved the world so much, he sent the Son of God to pay the price for sin that nobody had to perish but simply to receive Christ. So when we typically think about God sending people to hell, um, he what he's doing actually is confirming one's decision to be separated from him forever. And as a confirmation of that decision, he'll provide a place and he'll honor that decision where that person doesn't have to be uh, bothered by Jesus stories anymore or by God's presence anymore in a relational way, 
but that they can have what they decided to have, and God will honor their decision. And also, there's a place called heaven where God honors the decision of the person who receives Christ so they don't have to be bothered by any more filthy jokes or immoral stories or be vexed by the wickedness of of those who reject Christ. So evil and uh, good will never be abolished. Evil will never be totally annihilated. It will simply be quarantined to this place called hell. And then good will be quarantined to that place called heaven. So he has two places for two, two different kinds of people who made two radically different decisions. But in the end, he has a solution to both of them, and that is to separate the wheats from the tares, separate the saved from the unsaved, and give them exactly what they decided. Well, thanks for that uh, clarification and expanse on this topic. So let's now turn it over to you, Luke. Could God have avoided evil? I love the question because you know, the answer to the could is obviously yes. But the interesting fact is that he did not. And the question about that is, why did he not avoid the possibility? And I think Dr. Holden did an excellent job in answering that, is that you can't get to what God has envisioned in the way that God wanted to without this possibility. And if that's the case, then we have to realize really what lies at the bottom of all of the, the, the theodicies that people have done is that God knows more than we do. And even if that means we have to deal with something we don't like or that we don't think is fair, we're not using the same data set that God is. And I don't think we could even if we were given it. And so there's, there's this question, yes, could but the reality did not. Therefore, if we believe that God is who he claims to be, that he's perfect, all of his ways are perfect, that he knows everything, and he's always known everything, then God has chosen, rather than to remove the aspect of evil, he chose to redeem from evil. His path was that of redemption. Knowing that evil could and would occur, his choice was to redeem from evil, but really to put on a silver platter the idea of choice. And, and I think of this like a, a photo and a negative, where here's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. The entire place I picture as this place of light and goodness, and there's one point of potential evil in that garden, like a pinprick in the midst of a field of white light. They chose that one thing that God said not to. Now we're in the negative phase where everything is black. Everything is dark. The Bible says the whole world lieth in wickedness, and there's one point of light, and that point is Jesus Christ. It's like we've gone to the other side of the picture. And so we are still changed by choice, albeit we originate in a world that is full of sin and we choose righteousness as opposed to being in a world of righteousness and choosing that which is evil. And so in that, in, in that man, even in his choice to do that which was wrong, did not ultimately thwart God's plan to bring those who wanted 
to be with him and who would, from a place of sinfulness, choose his righteousness and therefore give him the glory and then experience their own transformation. And, you know, having been one of those persons, as we all are, of having experienced the transformation of God, we say, well, we don't really need that experience, right? We, we'd rather just be back in the Garden of Eden and everything's good and we have no... It doesn't mean that God had to allow evil in order for us to appreciate things, but it doesn't remove the fact that because of evil, we can very much so appreciate and have hope for that which is to come, that we'll finally be free of all those things which grieve us and vex us. And and so, unfortunately, we don't have a way to really uh, imagine what a world would be like that could contain these same dynamics, yet without the things necessary in place to allow evil. So could he have? Sure. But he didn't. And I'm okay with all of the things that have happened up to that point, up to the point of my own conversion, my own salvation, my own realization, realizing that without those things, I might never have known my need for God. And I'm grateful for the choices that he made and his own counsels that brought us by the path we have been brought to the point where we realize that we need to trust him and we need to allow him to give us his righteousness. Beautiful. Well, gentlemen, these are marvelous answers to, to, let's be honest, a very, very difficult question. And I really hope our listeners not only pay close attention to what was said on today's uh, episode, today's podcast, but go back and listen to part one and put all of this together and maybe take some notes on on these answers, because invariably you're going to bump into someone or talk with a relative and and they're going to bring up the problem of evil. You know, if if there was such thing as a God, why does he allow evil or why do you allow a mountain, you know? Uh, Aunt Mildred to get cancer, that type of things. And I think you've you've provided our listeners with some very thoughtful, um, great answers. So so thank you for that. And I know last week we did mention some books um, that you would recommend our listeners uh, to to read for more for more study, for more in depth. Um, it's okay if you repeat the same books for this this episode, but any other recommendations, reading recommendations to uh, give our listeners so they can dig a little bit deeper. And we'll start with you, Joe. You know, um, I gave uh, If God, Why Evil by Norman Geisler, but I also, uh, I think that a new recently published book by Clay Jones, Why Does God Allow Evil, is a good read. It's very readable. It's written in a popular way. It's a very short book. And also, if you want to dig in a little deeper into the classics, you can do Aquinas, uh, Thomas Aquinas. He wrote a book on evil. Mm, so good. Luke, how about you? Any any further recommendations? I know this sounds a little trite, but I'm actually going to recommend a reading of the book of Romans. I Not a book written necessarily in the manner that we would consider, but I... I received a challenge from one of my seminary professors that really changed my perspective and the way that Romans answers these questions. But he said, 
take the book of Romans, it says it's 16 chapters. You can read it through between 45 minutes to an hour and a half. He said, read it through once a day for two weeks. He said, You'll, your understanding of the purposes of God and where man really fits and where man's capability to interact with God's purposes, he said, you're going to understand that and the argumentation that Paul makes soteriologically in a way that you've never understood it before and in a way that you can't pull from various books that are trying to use the book to try to answer particular questions. And I did that, and I can say I can strongly recommend that as a good foundation to really help with the soteriological mix and the problem of sin and what God has done that really pushes away some of the questions that are asked in the theodistical realm and and sup- supplements that or really supplants that with a foundation that says, oh, well, maybe I need to ask different questions. And so my recommendation is just going to be that. Read the book of Romans once per day for two weeks. Just take the time, set it down without interruption, and do that. And I think that that's going to give the individual a very firm foundation in the argumentation that helps understand some of the delicacies that we've tried to address here. Hmm. Great recommendation. You can never go wrong with reading scriptures. So thanks for that, Luke. Well, Joe, Luke, thank you guys for joining us. And and once again, such such great, rich answers to a very difficult question. And I, I do appreciate your insight on this. So thank you so much for your time today. God bless you both. It's our privilege. Thank you, Brian. Well, join us next time as we continue our discussion on the question, are miracles possible? Until next time, proclaim the gospel, quit the saints, and defend the faith.